All right, well, at this time, the kids can head out to Children's Church, where you've got your last Children's Church lesson of 2019. And so for the rest of us, I, as we sit in here, I, I am just kind of amazed. It seems like, uh, I know people say this, and I know that you experience it, that the years with each passing one just go faster and faster. I find it hard to believe that here we are at the, at the end of 2019 already. I can remember, uh, man, I can remember growing up in the year 2000 was just an eternity away, and it turned 2000, and I feel like I've blinked, and we're now heading into the 20s. Um, that's just, that's just in, insane to me. Uh, all my life, when, we were, when we've referred to the 20s, we've always meant the 1920s, the roaring 20s, the jazz era, and all that, and now when we talk about the 20s, our kids, what we're, getting, what we're going into is what they will remember as the 20s which is just so, so weird. But as we look at uh, the end, oh, that seems so ominous up there, the end, uh, it's of the year, of the, of the decade, we're faced with what we're faced with all the time, and that is that uh, everything around us is always in a state of, of change. Things are never the way they were prior. They're not the way now that they will be in the future. Our nation changes. Our families change. Our financial situations change. The other circumstances we encounter in life, they all change. All of these things constantly change around us. And, and we as human beings, I mean, we, we want things to stay the same. It's what we are. And it's interesting because uh, we read last week uh, from... Ecclesiastes, where Solomon said, you know, that which was, will be, and will be again, uh, basically there's nothing new under the sun. Everything comes back around, and like right now, 80s fashion is back in, and that, that also is just what is going on uh, uh, in, the, in the world. What Solomon tells us is that the one thing that doesn't change is the fact that things are constantly changing. You face things this year that may have been difficult, but the scriptures tell us that you haven't faced anything that hasn't been faced or that isn't common to man. You have overcome things, been through things. Others will go through it. Others have been through it. It's just kind of the reality of things. So as we get to the end of the year, we inevitably kind of feel the need, maybe, to assess our year, look back and see what worked, what didn't, what was good, what wasn't, what were our mistakes, what were our successes, what went right, what went wrong, where did I fail, where did I succeed? Or maybe we're looking forward to the next year and asking ourselves, you know, what, what are we wanting out of this year? Is this year going to be better than last year? Are we, are we going to have more joy, more time with family, less stress, less, less worry? I feel like we already know the answer to all of those things, but, uh, you know, we still kind of set those assessments. And, you know, inevitably people set their resolutions, what their goals are. For the next year. So as we come into a new year this coming week, so here in the middle of the week, um, as we end this year, move into another one, I wanted us to look at a biblical principle that is perfect for crossing over from endings to beginnings, from old things to new things. 
So we're going to read a couple of uh, passages, a couple of stories. We're going to begin in Genesis chapter 19. Uh, as you know, God had uh, uh, Abraham and Lot have come out, and God presents them with the land, and they decide that they're going to divvy it up. Uh, Abraham gives Lot the uh, ability to choose which parcel of land he's going to claim for himself and his family, and Lot being Lot, uh, uh, did not take the, the graciousness of Abraham to heart, and instead took the choicest, the richest, the most fertile lands for himself and his family, and left Abraham that which was less fertile. So Lot moves down, and he uh, settles in the town of Sodom, and even though this is all the land that is now going to be promised to him and his offspring, he's living there. He establishes a family there with his wife. They come to have a reputation. They come to to have a place, a belonging. It's their city. Well, a time comes when uh, a couple of men show up. Uh, They are angels appearing as men, and they come to Lot, and they inform him that God is bringing judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah for their uh, crimes against the poor, for their inhospitality, the scriptures tell us, as well as their sexual immorality. God is fed up with the cries that have come up against Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the angels appear, and uh, skipping part of the story, they, they appear, and, and here's, what, here's where we pick up in verse 12. The men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or... Anyone you have in this city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out, and he said to his sons-in-laws who who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. So as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought them out and set them outside of the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Skipping down to verse 23. Now the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. And the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of the heavens. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city. And what grew on the ground? But Lot's wife behind him looked back. And she became a pillar of salt. Lot and his family had vested time and life and experience and time in these cities with these people. They cared about them. I mean, his daughters are are betrothed to men of this city. And when these angels show up and they tell them, look, we are going to come and we are going to destroy the city because God has heard the cries that have risen up against it. Uh, uh, Lot goes and he he warns his sons-in-law, but they don't listen to him. And the next morning... 
The next morning when the time has come and they say it is time to leave, it says he lingered. Now, I've read this story so many times. This is why I I, I love reading the scriptures, reading scriptures that I already know, reading stories I already know, because you always catch something you never caught before. Did you see that they said, God, it is time for God to destroy the city? And it says that Lot and his family, they just, they dilly-dally. They're just, they just hang out. They're not in any hurry. There was something inside of them that didn't want to leave. And I I don't think that should be a shock to us when you have spent time. I mean, here they are in their home, and they're suddenly being told, you've got to flee, you've got to get up over the hills, you've got to get out of this place. They are abandoning their home, their possessions, everything that they are not able to quickly carry with them, all of their friends, and, and even their family, some family. We know that two daughters went out. Did he have more? We don't know. But they're getting ready to lose a lot. And even though they know that God is getting ready to destroy this city, there's something that holds them in that place. They they don't want to leave. They linger. So much so that the angels, I mean, they, they get frustrated and they grab them by the hand and they haul them out of the city. Really, you almost have this image of them being dragged, kicking and screaming, and the angels throw them outside of the gates and they tell them. They've already warned them once and they really didn't heed it because they had to drag them out. They said, now listen, go over the hills and don't look back. Go. And so they do, they go. And they make it up out of the valley. And then suddenly behind them they hear the thunderous noise of the fiery, sulfurous rock as it crashes into their home, into the city. They smell the rotten egg scent as it wafts through the valley up to where they are. They can feel the heat behind them. They can hear the screams of the people as literal hell fire is falling upon them. And Lot's wife's heart lingered. And she turned back. God was merciful the first time they did not heed his warning. The second time he was not. They received mercy and then judgment. And so Lot's wife, still there, the pillar of salt, remaining in the city that her heart could not leave as Lot and his daughters went on and continued life. It's an important story when we, when we read through it and we look at it to realize what exactly. It's, it's, it's human nature. There's, there really isn't any part of this story. If I hear thunderous screams and loud fire, I, I'm probably turning around even if I've been told not to. How many of us were kids? I'm serious. How many of us were kids and told, when you look at the eclipse, don't look directly at it. And every one of us knows dimwits who all looked at the sun. They all, everyone did. Not everyone, but I'm saying, you know, you've got people that did it. Why? Because there's a curiosity in us. There's something. 
She didn't want to leave it. Neither one of them wanted to leave it. Let's go to our second story. Numbers chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Let me set a little, a little background to this. The Israelite nation had been born, all of them had been born into slavery in Egypt, except for Moses. That's all they'd known. Beatings, not a lot of food, being pushed and pushed until they died. God has delivered them. They have come out of this place. They have seen the ten plagues. They have watched their children be spared when the angel of death came through the nation. They watched Pharaoh send them out. They they witnessed the people giving them gold and silver just to get them out as quick as they could. They had come down to the river. They had witnessed the pillar of fire come down and separate them from Pharaoh's army when he changed his mind. They watched God part the Red Sea and they crossed through it to the other side. They watched the fire disappear. The army charged down into the water and the waters closed upon them. They witnessed all of these things. And once they get to the other side, they say, what is there to eat? What are we going to eat? And so God provides for them manna in the morning. Bread upon the ground that they would be able to eat. But we are told that they begin to grumble and complain against God. And they begin to say things like, Do you remember how much better we had it in Egypt before Moses and Aaron dragged us out here into the desert? Do you remember the bread and the wine and the honey? And they begin to long for it. They get tired of the bread and they begin to say, Oh, do you remember the meat we used to eat when we were in Egypt? And God says, All right, I'll provide for you meat as well. So in the morning, they have the manna upon the ground. And in the evening, they have the quail which would arrive and then they could eat. So they had bread and they had meat. God met their needs. Even though they grumbled and their hearts were still back in Egypt, He had mercy on them. Then we get to this point where they have crossed over. They are now near the Jordan. They have sent spies into the promised land. And the spies come back. And most of them are reporting giants. Huge, massive men who are going to crush them like grasshoppers. They say we cannot win. Only a couple said they could. And here's what it says. After they get this report, here's where we are. Then all of the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader to go back to Egypt. 
Skipping down to verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall come to a full end, and there they shall The people had grumbled against God, saying, we should go back to Egypt. And God had had mercy on them. A lot like Lot and his family lingering, God had mercy on them. He understood our heart that wants things to stay the same. I want you to consider this for just a moment. Exactly what the Israelites are saying and why God is so insulted. All they had known was slavery. They didn't know freedom. They didn't know what it was like to be a nation. All they had known was someone waking them up, putting them to work, feeding them, and putting them to bed. And yet, after having seen God do all of these amazing things that God had done, all of these miracles, mighty works and wonders, here they are standing, looking at people and saying, they're too big for us to kill. We're going to be killed. God isn't with us. Let's go back, they say. It is better. Let's go back to Egypt. These people were, it just blows the mind. They would rather be in Egypt in suffering because at least Egypt is familiar. They know what to expect. They know what's coming. They know what the day's like. It is routine. And, and even though it's suffering, there is a comfort in it. It is predictable, understandable. There is nothing uncertain about life in Egypt. They know exactly what's coming. But, and they would rather have that than to follow a God who can part seas, dump fire from heaven, but follow him into uncertainty. Our desire for certainty, for security, for things to stay the same, very rarely does it bring us freedom. It just enslaves us to old ways that may not have even been good for us in the first place. And so God looks and he says, you know what? Your heart, your mind, and your desire is Egypt. You will wander in the desert until all of you who are over 20 perish. None of you will follow me. None of you will enter my promised land. Their minds were backwards focused. God can't use minds hearts that are backwards focused. Let's go to the New Testament. Let's look at Jesus. Luke 9, 57 to 62. 
As they were going along the road, someone said to him, that is Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another man, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, and here is the biblical principle. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So we have one gentleman who comes up to Jesus as he's walking along. Jesus is gaining popularity, and he wants to follow him now as, the, as it's getting, it's kind of a movement. He sees a movement happening. He wants to be a part of it. So he comes up, and he says to Jesus, he says, I, I want to follow you. I'll go wherever you go. And Jesus warns him. Because in this guy's mind, you have to understand, they have, they have this mindset. This is the Messiah who's going to overthrow Rome, and he's going to be established king. This guy is saying, I want to go where you go. That, that sounds like a good plan. Jesus' answer to him is, there is no certainty with me. There's no pillow with me. There's no bed. There's no home. There's no house. We are moving constant. There is no certainty following me. That's what he says to that guy. The other guy, uh, he looks at one and he says, follow me. And this guy says, first let me go bury my father. Seems like a pretty reasonable request. And Jesus says, nope, let the dead bury their own dead. Seems kind of cruel. No, what Jesus is trying to say to him is, listen, for each and every one of us, there is always something in this life that will keep us tethered in place and keep us from becoming what it is God wants us to be. And it is uh, constant. It can be family. It can be friends. It can be job. It can be all manner of things. But Satan will attempt to tether you to this world and prevent you from moving forward. He wants to enslave you in the past. And so Jesus looks at this man and he says, no. No, do not go back. And then the last one looks and he says, I will follow, but let me first go and say goodbye to my family. Again, doesn't seem like an unreasonable request. But Jesus' point there is very clear, summarizing it. You cannot put your hand to the work and have your heart where you left. You can't do it. We use the phrase, get your head in the game, right? I mean, that's a pretty common phrase, I think. Get your head in the game, which means if you are not mentally, emotionally, physically present in this moment, you're missing out. So I want to say this. I want to I kind of summarize this. Living, as we end this year, living emotionally, mentally, or spiritually in the past is death. Living emotionally, mentally, or spiritually in the past is death. Why do I say that? That sounds harsh, but it's a truth. We've already seen it in the two stories. We've seen it in the teaching of Jesus. I'm at the age where I'm watching my kids. They're going to start leaving the house now. Will turns 18 this year, graduated, he's going to start moving on. Most of you have been through this once or twice, I've got a couple more to go, I'm in that transition. My life is going to rapidly change over the next few years. And I have watched 
parents lament the loss of their kids. And I'm sure I'll feel the same. I know I, know I will. I watched it with my mother. I've watched it with others who, who, who look back and, and maybe open up and, and tearfully look at a, the picture of the kids when they were little. I've, I've done that with teenagers now. You look back when they're little and you're like, remember when they were fun? Do you remember that? Do you remember those days? And you long, and, and, and what, what happens? What happens when your heart and your mind wander into that past? It sounds like it'd be, a, it's, a, it's a good thing, but it, living in those moments is death. Why? If my heart is with children who aren't with me right now, if I'm comparing the ones that are with me to those that aren't with me anymore, I'm going to be frustrated with my kids all the time. Why can't you be like? Why aren't you this? See, the past doesn't exist anymore. I have family members that I've lost that I would love to talk to one last time. I would, I would, I would love to talk to my grandparents again. I would love it. But see, if I spend my time living in the past, I can live in memories, but I can't interact with them. I can't talk with them again. I can't share life with them anymore. If I live in the past emotionally, mentally, or spiritually, I'm living in death. There's nothing new. There's no life in it. No, in fact, what I need to do is in this moment embrace what I can do now. You see, right now, right now, we make choices. We're making choices. You're making a choice to sit here. You didn't know that. You can get up and leave. You you had that choice. Right now, you can make that choice. Guess what? You can't make the choice of whether or not you got up and left in the service last week. You cannot make a choice in the past. You cannot interact in the past. You cannot alter the past. All you can do that we call life is in the moment right now that shapes the future. The past does not shape the future because I cannot alter the past. It is the present. It is this moment. It is life that alters the future and determines the trajectory of where I'm going. The past is death. And all you have to do, all you have to do is look at Lot and his wife. They wanted to linger. The angels had to drag them out. Why? Because if they stayed, they died. If they allowed their hearts to stay with that which was lost, they died. And they get to the other side. God dumping his wrath out on them. Lot's wife turns around. Her heart was with Sodom. She stayed with Sodom. She has never left it. Those Israelites who wanted to return to Egypt and not follow God into the promised land, what was their end result living in the past? Death. They died in the desert. You and I cannot grasp something that no longer exists. We cannot hold on to something 
that is no longer here. We're trying to recapture something that isn't only breeds frustration, misery. The only way that you and I find joy is in letting go. The only way you find joy in this life is in letting go. There's a phrase we often say, we think it's true, it's absolutely not true, and this is the phrase, time heals all wounds, right? And the concept there is, given enough time, uh, 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 the past loses its grip on us. That is not true. Time wears us down so we let go of the past because we get tired of carrying it. That part's true. But we are never free until we let go of the past. Our mistakes, our successes, when things were good, when things were bad, until we let go of them, we are tethered to that past. I will only be healed when I let go of the hurts that I carry. And that can be today, that can be in years from now, or as long as I'm willing to bear it. Listen, Isaiah, so, 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 boy, downer. Okay, Isaiah 43, 18 and 19, God says this, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. He says, open your eyes. Wake up. I am doing something new. You want to live in the past? You want to live in the desert? I'm not there anymore. Because you can't change it. You can't alter it. But right now, even if you are in the wilderness, you are in the desert, even if your life is difficult and burdensome and you have suffered and you are hurting, right now I am making rivers of life in your desert. I am preparing a way forward in this next year, in the new day. I am Setting a path forward. Stop looking at what was and look at what I'm doing. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach us. It's a principle from the beginning. Let go of the past year, let go of all the years before it. Let go of all the wrongs done against you. Ephesians 4.32 tells us to forgive as we have been forgiven. Let go of every mistake you've made. All of them. Right now. I don't even care. I, I don't care what egregious, horrible sin that you have unconfessed to everyone here. The deep, dark thing that you don't want anyone to know. I don't care what it is. Drop it. Lay it down. Hebrews 8.12 tells us that God blots out our sins and he remembers them no more. If God doesn't remember them, why are you? 
Let go of the worries that plague you, the things you wish you had done different. You can't change it. doesn't matter. Move on. Don't worry about the decisions that you don't even face yet. Right? Christ tells us each day has enough worry of its own. Don't worry about the days ahead. Philippians 4, 6 tells us to be anxious for nothing so that God's peace can live in us right now. Do not be anxious for anything. I also want to add this. Let go of any success you've had in this year. This could have been the best year ever for you. That's great. I'm glad you had a great year. It doesn't mean anything now. It's over. What are we doing now? Where are we going from here? Jesus tells that parable of the, of the man who had like just a bumper crop year, right? I mean, just, just brought in so many crops that his storehouses couldn't even hold it all, so he tore them down, built bigger ones, filled them up, and he patted himself on the back, said, this was a fantastic year, now I get to sit back and relax and just enjoy my life. And God goes, no, uh, no, t- tonight is your, your, your checking out. Life's over. So he was patting himself on the back and thought that this, no. Your successes, your failures, none of that matters now. The question is, well, let me put it this way. In the past, I would have said, let's have a better year this year than we had last year. Have a more focused year, a more faithful year, whatever it is. And I'm I'm not going to say that anymore because everything that you did in the past doesn't matter. This doesn't matter. Are we going to have God in our life this year? That's, that's all i got to decide right now. How much of God am I going to allow in? I, it doesn't need to be more. Late. Last year doesn't matter. How much am I going to let him in? Look, uh, last, last passage, Philippians 3, uh, verse 7 to 14. Listen to Paul. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already attained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. I'm going to forget. Paul says, I've got all these great accolades. I've done great things. I've done bad things. He says, I want to forget it all. All I want to know right now. I don't care where I've come from. I don't care my mistakes. I don't care my successes. None of that matters. The only thing that matters right now is being like Jesus, conformed in his righteousness, sharing in his sufferings, allowing his death to take root in me, to allow myself to die and him to live in me. That's all that matters. That's all I want to know, he says. It's the only thing I want to think about. That's it. In talking about this concept of having to let go of the past, C.S. Lewis, um, he used the example of monkey bars. I think 
probably everyone in here has done the monkey bars, right? Anyone not know? I don't even know if they're even allowed on playgrounds anymore. So the monkey bars, you've got the bars that are lined out. I'm the pathetic child you saw. First time I got up there, everyone's showing me. They go out, woo, 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 swinging across like monkeys. I get up there. I stand on it. I'm, I'm terrified. I put my first hand out. And I reach out and I grab a hold of the other one. And I take that leap. I step off. Woo! And I'm hanging there. And I look down. And it is far down. And I am terrified. I am terrified of falling. And so I'm just hanging there like this. My sister and others are yelling, Hey, go on to the next one. I can't. I can't. That's not, there's no security in that. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of swinging around in there happening. If I do that, I am comfortable right where I am. And I just hung there. And then, of course, everyone else is yelling at you because you're in the way. Hurry up. Get off. You know, move it. I'm terrified. I, I cannot move forward until I let go of the one that's behind me. And I reach forward to the one that is ahead. And once this one that is above me becomes the one behind me, I let go of it. And I reach out for the next one. If I never let go of the past, I cannot advance forward. No, in fact, here I am, I'm terrified of falling, so I hold on with dear life to both of them. I don't swing forward and get to the other side because I'm scared of falling. We all know what the end result is. I eventually get so tired and so worn out that my arms give out and I drop anyway. Holding on to the past just causes us to drop life. We just drop it. And that isn't God's design for us. So 2019's over, the decade's over, new one coming up. Everything's all new. God's saying, behold, open your eyes, pay attention. I have a new thing for you now. And you and I get to decide where we place our heart. Do we get our head into it? Or do we still allow ourselves to hold on to the past, the mistakes, the successes? I encourage you to move forward. Let's stand. We're going to sing our song of invitation. If there's anything that you need to leave behind in this year, anything you want to confess, it says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and will forgive us of our iniquities. He will remove them. As far as the east is from the west, you can be free of them this morning. Just come and let us pray with you.